0: It's Wednesday, April 26th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Zoe Zephyr was indecorous, and therefore she was banned. The transgender lawmaker has been banned from the Montana House of Representatives after her words were ruled out of order. Those words were over a bill which would have been banned transgender care for minors. Here's what Zephyr said. Only thing I will say is if if you vote yes on this bill and yes on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation, when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. Well, as far as provocations go, that's fairly benign, routine even dramatic, but undercut with how often such phrases are said. Here, for instance, is Indiana Republican Congressman Jim Banks last year. If any American is harmed or killed and not safely evacuated, or if any of this military equipment or weapons are used to harm or kill an American, the blood is directly on Joe Biden's hands. It's rhetoric. It's not a nice thing to say. Zoe Zephyr would say that banning transgender care isn't a nice thing to do. And you're allowed to say not nice things when advocating for or against important legislation. Yes, even on the floor of the House of Representatives of the state of Montana. Zephyr also supported protesters who were arrested, and Montana Republicans took issue with that too as an affront to decorum. Zephyr hasn't been expelled. The session has only a little over a week to go. Zephyr will be allowed to vote on bills, but will not be able to continue in debates she refused to apologize and was voted down today the official decree cited her violation of quote the rules collective rights safety dignity integrity or decorum of the house of representatives on the show today the silencing of voices continued don lemon and the republican candidate he tangled with Also Tucker Carlson, and the very bad word that led to his being allowed, say no more words. But first, speaking of provocations, Jenna Friedman, oh, oh, I apologize, Jenna, for using Tucker Carlson to segue into you, but Jenna is a comedian, filmmaker, and writer with TV shows and movies like Borat 2's subsequent movie film. She wrote for The Connors. she wrote for The Late Show with David Letterman, and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. She was a producer there, too. She joins us next to talk about her new book, Not Funny, Essays on Life, Comedy, Culture, Etc., and her experiences on her adult swim show, Soft Focus, Jenna Friedman, up next. Jenna Friedman is not funny, though there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. She was a writer for Late Show with David Letterman. She was a field producer with The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Her stand-up comedy special, Lady Killer, is on the Peacock Network. Her writing credits include Oscar-nominated stint as a screenwriter. I I wasn't quite sure what her Oscar-nominated turn was for. I thought it was from maybe Das Boot in 1982, I wasn't sure if it was sound mixing or sound editing. It, sure, it turns out it was for Barat, subsequent movie film. She's funny in ways that are both subtle and confrontational. And her Adult Swim series, Soft Focus, is a cult classic, which I guess means it was canceled only after a few episodes. But it's amazing. Thanks for coming on the gist, Jenna.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, Adult Swim, Soft Focus, Soft Focus on Adult Swim kind of got swallowed up at the beginning of the pandemic. We were about to shoot the third special and then the pandemic happened and the people who really brought the show in left Adult Swim. And so the show just kind of ended up dissipating with them.
0: Yeah, I don't even know how I found it. You know, these days, like there, you could go down rivulets of programming uh, paths, and there was this show. And I think I had read, I think I had read in the New York Times a little bit about your Cannibal Cop interview, but I watched <laughs> all of them or all that were available, and I was blown away by the by the ambition and the execution. And here's the long question, which is. I had been thinking that that forum, which is like a daily show forum, and you interview people who have ridiculous points of view and you show them to be ridiculous. I was feeling that it was running its course and you brought something new to it. But were you feeling that? Were you, maybe the people who did this and had been working at the daily show for 10 years, were maybe you questioning, I don't know, is there still more juice in this lemon?
1: That is docu-style, we call it, because legally we can't call it documentary, just FYI. <laughs> legally,
0: who owns, who owns documentary? If well, you could call things, it documentary now.
1: <laughs> right, right. But docu-style kind of is, it, it encompasses pranks and Borat type stuff. That, I live for that. That is my favorite type of comedy. It's the hardest comedy to make. It's sometimes the most thankless comedy because the, el- the levels of production that go involved into getting something good are just so extreme sometimes. And then it's a lot of times not covered in the Writers Guild, so it's not paid as much. But I think that that docu-style of comedy is really my favorite because it, I mean, it's so real. And people always ask, do those people really say that? Or how do you get people to say those things or do those things? And I, I mean, yeah, most of it is real. I think when it's staged, you can tell that it's staged and it's not satis- It's not as satisfying to interview people if they're not honest. I think the best part about it is really like showing how people are, like that segment that we did about sexual harassment and gaming i mean that's one of the most fun things i've ever and terrifying i thought i can't believe i didn't get punched in the face i thought i was gonna get punched in the face that whole day uh for people listening we basically gamified what it would feel like to be sexually harassed or assaulted. I mean, you
0: put these gaming dudes in these VR headsets, and you had them uh, exist in a sexual harassment universe, but then you rubbed hot dogs against them.
1: (laughs) Well, I just from a production point of view, we did make sure that if anyone was vegetarian, I got a vegetarian hot dog. But I, I was we were trying to, we were trying to get the game to be more interactive. So they were in a room that Look like the room that they were in in VR. And in VR, this Harvey Weinstein porn reenactor comes in and asks if he can jerk off. And then my producer, Josh Cohen, had a really good idea. He's like, can you make it more, can we make it more interactive so he's not just jerking off in VR that there's some physical element to it? So I have these, like, a screenshot save from Adult Swim of, like, standards and practice telling us, like, because at one point he jerks, spoiler alert, the porn star jerks off into a plant and then flicks the jizz on the gamers, but virtually. So then I'm in the room with a spray bottle of water, and we timed it so that I had, like, an earpiece in, so Josh would be like, okay, go shoot them. <laughs> It's so dumb. But it's like, you if you're going to talk about something so narky and boring as, like, sexual harassment and gaming, you have to make it funny. You have to, like, speak to the level of guy gamers and so, like, you know, watching their comrades getting like fake jizz sprayed on them is funny. It's just, you can't argue with that, you know? So, so you can touch on like really intense, unfunny topics, but if you do it in a way that's like playful and actually funny, I think that people either hook into the ideas and maybe learn something, or at the very least, they don't like troll you because they don't want their friends to think that they're not in on the joke. Do you think that men who harass women should be in positions of power? Absolutely not.
0: But I'm a Trump, I believe in Trump. I don't know if this is, that, is are you guys making correlations with Trump voters versus? No, you, know?
1: you just did that yourself.
0: Yeah. So this like sprays out water and this is the thing that like made me feel like something was touching me here. Like I kept feeling something right here or somewhere like right here. And I was like thinking, I was like, I thought you were like, like part of the experience, like you were just touching me or something.
1: Well, that's the suit. What the f-? That's trippy, dude. Yeah, nothing touched you.
0: Also with the uh, the water bottle, and it was just water, you didn't work on the composition of the substance.
1: We tried, Adult Swim, that was what I was getting at. Adult Swim was very adamant of like, it has to be in like a blue or pink bottle. Like it can't be, it can't look like semen. It can't be like, like a kind of like egg, white that's been like slightly cooked. It can't look like anything like that.
0: That's their standards and practices yeah. of the Rick and Morty network? <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, yeah, for live action, yeah.
0: Back to my original question. You know, you've been doing this, you've been with The Daily Show and um, other shows of this ilk for a decade. And in the beginning, and this is not a criticism, you know, you listen to Sergeant Peppers and these days it doesn't seem like such amazing production techniques, but of course it was. In the beginning, just the fact that Maybe people didn't even understand that this was a joke show. And then maybe five years later, they understood, but still could be gotten in on the joke. Now it seems that everyone is so savvy that the bar is higher to actually point something out useful for the audience. Now, were you feeling that? Is that something that people in your world who've maybe been producing these kind of shows for a while are saying to themselves, is there much more, uh, is there much more room for this genre?
1: Well, I think like any genre, things get stale and you have to innovate. I think uh, Nathan Fielder's new show, The Rehearsal, is a really good example of innovating the genre. Um, I was tasked to do a true crime show that had comedic elements and I loved that show. It was really hard to make, and it was really hard to have comedy in a show where you're literally talking to victims' families. But I do think we struck a balance, and I think we're able to kind of use the daily show format, but to, like, talk to a shady defense attorney or, like, a prosecutor who is, like, criminalizing victims of domestic violence and, like, kind of use comedy to shed light on these issues in a way that I haven't seen other people really do. And so, yeah, I mean it's not like the first time, you know, it's not like old school daily show where you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that person said that thing. And also we're living in a moment where like people are so crazy and reality is so crazy that like the stuff we did, the daily show doesn't really work anymore because people, we're not all, we don't, we're not all tethered to the same reality. Um, but I do think there's still room to innovate. I mean, Eric Andre innovates all the time. Um, Way, I think, innovated the genre in a, in a way on her show, which is really funny.
0: Working with uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, um, when you got that gig based on your credentials, how much of how much of the structure was, Uh, communicated to you and how much, and I know, and I've talked to people who've worked with him. I know there are a lot of NDAs involved, so talk as much as you can. And it's also edited. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. but how much of it going in was uh, planned or at least hoped to be planned and we'll have these set pieces and how much was, I'm not going to say improvise in the moment, but how much of changing on the fly and being extremely flexible is there in a project like that?
1: Uh, It's a little bit of both. I think with those kinds of projects, you really script out the scene ahead of time. You have to. And the more scripted it is going into it, the more room you have for happy accidents. And stuff will always change. I mean, that whole movie, COVID happened in the middle of production. So that whole movie changed dramatically once he had to go into the lockdown house uh, because of the pandemic. So, um, I think specific scenes maybe in his movie don't haven't like, don't change. Well, I mean, every, you're dealing with real people, so you're always going to have change and like a regular script, you go out to shoot it. You might have like a couple pages, but for the type of stuff that he does, you'll have like three or four times as many pages or jokes just because you kind of have to prepare for all sorts of scenarios and then how those scenarios are going to fold into the larger narrative.
0: So of all the kinds of comedy you do, and you do stand-up, you've written for late-night shows, you just, I shouldn't say just, you know, contributing, being a workhorse, contributing jokes for monologues. You do your own shows of different varieties, and then there's um, a main kind of genre that you work with, which are these fake interview shows. I'm sure they all give you different things, but where do you feel the most... Oh, and you've written a a memoir and you do writing. Where do you feel like you're communicating at the top and height of your comedic brain and your political brain? Because I know that's very important to you.
1: I think it stems from like, what are we trying to say? And then the medium, and then it goes from there. So like, I obviously love the interview format. I love doing interviews with people who don't know who I am, or um, maybe underestimate what I'm going to say or do those are very fun people that where you do feel like you're like punching up to not like I don't like I don't like making fun of people for being dumb or something um and the pranks and pranks are you know that that producing those things and shooting those things I mean it's like you get adrenaline like you're like the it, it it feels I mean you really do get a rush from it and so and Yes, I have a new book out called Not Funny. It'll come out to <laughs> April 18th. Please buy it where I talk about some of this stuff. But like you just don't get the high from writing a book that you get from being in the field, doing kind of high risk pranks. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it comes from like, you know, what, what, what am I trying to say and why am I talking to this person? That, that's probably what drives everything else. Are
0: the annoying things about stand-up uh, pushing that into second place? Uh, what I'm thinking is from your answer. I've interviewed a lot of people, do a lot of things, but so many of them say, you know, but I always come back to stand-up, the purity of the form, the fact that there are no editors, and it's just me. But then, you know, you also write about that. There's a there's a lot of annoyances with stand-up, and a male headliner has never taken you on tour, and maybe there are parts of your career where you feel more alone with stand up than you do with something that's collaborative like one of the interview shows. So is that holding stand back back in your rankings of the different genres?
1: Well, I'm in the edit when I make um, those like soft focus. I directed an episode. I directed the Indefensible. I'm I'm in the edit when I do those kinds of things, because I've also worked where I haven't been in the edit. I've done projects for Nat, Nat Geo and for Vice where I haven't been in the edit. And the, I just, I don't really come across, like my comedy doesn't come across well if I'm not like directing it. And, and the Daily Show really taught me how to do that because when you're a field producer, you essentially were like writing and directing those segments. So um, having that level of control is similar to the level of control you have as a stand up. But yeah, I mean, stand up Is like I have a love hate relationship with it. I'm just getting back into stand up now. Uh, I don't love it as much as I love the other stuff. I love the other stuff. I mean, the other stuff. It's it's so hard. Stand up's easier, for sure. Um, But I love like I remember doing a Daily Show piece, and it was with a state senator. I had pitched the piece off of just there was a chemical spill in Charleston, West Virginia. And I thought if we could get one Republican who was against clean water, but then voted for clean water after this chemical spill, we could do like a toxic Avenger parody where it's like, oh, like chemicals in the water are turning Republicans into Democrats. Uh And we found this woman, I want to say her name was Cindy Frisch, I think, sweetest woman ever. I probably felt the worst about this segment, but again, she's a sitting politician and she also voted to increase like selenium and coal chemicals in the water until she was herself poisoned by the by a chemical contamination and we did this kind of thing with her where i worked with all guys the daily show at the time in the field department they're like you're never gonna get her to do an act out of her own chemical contamination and we did and we had this poor like elected official running through a field And we shot like it was so funny and I felt like a mean girl in middle school. I felt so bad, but it was so funny. And then anything she didn't feel comfortable doing because she was in a black suit. We just went to like a Macy's next door. I put on they bought me like a black suit. (laughs) I put like a toxic Avenger mask and a tutu on and I like did the rest and that's why it's docu-style
0: that right there yeah
1: and i was on the plane back from west virginia and i just my stomach physically hurt from like laughing so much we were like in the hotel room with her like it felt like we were like shooting a bad porn where she's literally doing spit takes of her own chemical contamination and i'm like directing her and it was so funny and it was like the weirdest feeling of like if this plane goes down like i just hope someone like i hope we've like uploaded the footage to the cloud so someone else could edit it like that level of like, I just, when you have a good shoot in the can and then you can just like sit with your editor and like make the comedy magic come of it. Like that to me is my favorite part of the creative process in any capacity. I do love stand up, but my standup is never going to be like mainstream enough to like fill arenas. And I, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. Um, but like the, the other stuff, like, You know, performing, writing, and directing those segments, those kind of pranky segments. That's my favorite thing to do.
0: Jenna Friedman is the author of, but not... (laughs) Thank you.
1: (laughs) But not the title character of of
0: not funny. It's not like a Steven Seagal movie where he was always on deadly ground or out for vengeance. She just is... Written a book called Not Funny, which is sometimes a
1: thing that was lobbed in her direction. But it's just not true. The it's, subtitle a is, it's, a it's a great title. It it's a great title because it frees you up title. to say whatever you want so that you don't have the pressure to be funny.
0: Right. You're a little funnier. Like, oh, my God. She, she said not funny, but that was funny. And I'm looking at all the books on my shelf and people who I've interviewed or – am about to interview. Robert Rubin, former Treasury Secretary. No, that guy's not funny. (laughs) Under the Skin by Linda Villarosa about disparities in health outcomes. Not funny at all. Of all the books to be called not funny, this is the least appropriate one of the last 10 I've interviewed. Cool. I'll take it. Jenna Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And now, the spiel. If you're like me, you're interested in the stories that Don Lemon and Tucker Carlson told. News stories, I mean, but also the stories within their newscasts that didn't really count as news, and if you're like me, you were interested in Monday's detuckerization and unlemoning. But it's not like the media lacks for stories about the media and speculating why some newscaster slash pundit have been pulped. You can find that everywhere. And I wanted to leave it alone, but they keep pulling me back. So today, the Wall Street Journal put out a report that really does seem to lean into the explanation for Tucker's firing was over a word. Oh, it's a nasty word. It starts with a C, and it describes, well, it describes a prominent piece of dialogue in every Guy Ritchie movie, but we're not so naive as to think that the Murdoch clan did not have any other considerations in slaughtering their cash cow, but apparently he really was, according to this report and a few others, he really was done in by his excessive use of this word toward women. By the way, in most workplaces, excessive use would mean any use of this word other than to, say, disapprovingly quote it if you're a newscaster quoting a news story. That other Tucker utterances kept him in good stead, but not this one, is a little astounding. Uttering words like stolen election, not that bad. Not uttering words like insurrection, also fine. Great replacement. On lots of TV stations, those would be two words that required lots of explaining, but it was all fine at Fox. Tucker said the one bad word, and that was the causes ex-employee. Also, to be fair, Tucker was less anti-vaccine and less election skeptic than many others at Fox, including hosts who are still there. Now we get to Don Lemon. Well, never saying that word that we know of about a woman, he had plenty to say about women. She says people, you know, politicians or something are not in their prime. Nikki Haley is not in her prime. Sorry. When a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s and maybe 40s. What are you talking acor- That's not according to me. Prime so for what? Uh, it depends. I mean, it's just like Prime. If you look it up, it'll say, if you look, if you Google, when is a woman in her prime, it'll say 20s, 30s, and 40s. I don't necessarily... 40s. with oh, I got another and saying I agree with. That. And that wasn't a one-off. Variety reported on Lemon's poor relationships with female co-workers over the years. As a gay man, he didn't harass them for sex, but he seems to have constantly gotten crosswise with members of the opposite sex. Now That was all behind the scenes until the knives came out publicly. Lemon wasn't undone by a word or even a of off-air attitudes, but by a pose and persona that, once more to be fair, he was encouraged to embrace by his bosses. During the Trump presidency, Lemon would leave aside the traditional role of anchor, eschew any pretense of objectivity, and speak, he would say candidly, about the excesses of the Trump administration, or about racism in America, or about all manner of societal development that in some contexts would be fodder for news coverage— That context, by the way, used to be CNN, and the new boss wants it to be CNN again. So Lemon would do this, and CNN saw in that the potential for ratings. And then he allowed his anchors to pontificate. In fact, he pretty much made them pontificate, opine, share their own experiences. It was very satisfying. Viewers liked it. But then Chris Cuomo, who was once kept apart from his brother on air, was allowed to do segments with Governor Andrew Cuomo because the lore of filial interplay was just too great to turn away. That stricture destroyed, so was Chris's tenure, because chumming it up with a popular governor, that's one thing. Advising off air, a spiraling governor, that's entirely another. Or so Jeff Zucker decreed before he too was ousted. Now, we come to the interview that is being cited as the proximate cause of Don Lemon leaving. That war was not fought for black people to have guns. That's 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 not that war okay, was that, fought for black people to have freedoms in this country. Yeah. Actually, that's why the Civil War was fought. OK, the sad that part wasn't about fought it, for, for black people to have guns, I think. Actually, you wow. know, funny fact is black people did not get to enjoy the other freedoms until their Second Amendment rights were secured. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy was on Lemon's show to advance the notion that the Second Amendment played a role in the liberation of black Americans after the Civil War. Now, after the Civil War, that can mean any time after the Civil War, up until today, but there is plenty of scholarship to back up A version of what Ramaswamy was saying, Emory University Professor Carol Anderson came on this very program to talk about guns and free black people and how the Second Amendment was denied to African Americans, but also important for African Americans.
1: George Washington sends his
0: emissary down to South Carolina and he says, look, you don't have enough white men to take on the 8,000 force that's coming from the British. You must arm the enslaved. And the South Carolina government said, excuse me, Mm -hmm. they were horrified. And they said, you know what? We'd rather take our chances with the British. We'd rather take our chances with the king than arm arm the enslaved. And so, you know, you begin to think about that, how deeply embedded that is, that that fear of arming black folk. Charles E. Cobb Jr. wrote a book called This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, How Guns Made the Civil Rights Movement Possible. Cobb, a former activist with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee before he became an author and journalist, knew from whence he wrote. The book was praised by Ibram X. Kendi, widely hailed as an important work with black intelligentsia and many others, many others behind it. Ramaswarmy's statement could have meant exactly what Anderson and Cobb were writing about, or maybe he was citing some nonsense that needed to be called out. But we, the audience, could never understand which one it was because we needed to hear what he meant and Don Lemon made that impossible. Well, here's where you and I have a different point of view. I think we should be able to express our views regardless of the color of our skin. We should have this debate I'm not saying you without me express regarding your views, you as a black it's man, insulting that but you're me regarding here, you as a fellow citizen. That you're That's what I think here, we should see. Whatever ethnicity you are explaining to me whatever about, ethnicity about what it's like to be black Whatever America, ethnicity I am, I'll sorry. tell you what I am. I'm an Indian American. I'm proud of it. But I think we should have this debate. Black, white, doesn't matter. I think we should have this on debate. On the content of should, the ideas. When two people talk over each other in real life, it could be constructive. It could be interesting to the audience, the human ear can make sense of in-person, dual conversations, or professionally mic'd audio in a film or TV show. But TV studio audio doesn't work that way, and every TV professional knows it. Cross-talk is unintelligible. And when the producers of the show tried to direct Lemon in a more useful direction, he audibly chafed. Oh, wait, on. Hang on, please. That I cannot keep a thought if you guys are talking to me in my ear. So uh, hang on one second. So to say that, that black people, say what you said again. What we could hear was... Lemon taking umbrage as a black man. Recognize you, the fact that we when have you are in black skin and you live in this country, then you can disagree with me. But we're not. You mentioned in there that I we a very different. John, I, I think we have to be able here. to talk about these issues in the open, regardless of the color. But of But to what skin. thesis was he objecting exactly? We don't know. The interview was a hash. The progressive writer Jed Legum wrote, I'm not a Don Lemon fan, but this was a pretty good interview. The idea that the NRA played a critical role in securing civil rights for black Americans is insulting. But the centrist writer Ben Dreyfus pretty effectively rebutted him. It was unintelligible, that interview was, I would say. The public who isn't going into discussion having predetermined that Vivek Ramaswamy must be wrong got nothing out of it and that is the fault of Don Lemon. The interesting thing to me isn't that CNN broke with Don Lemon, it's that the breaking point included his use of what's called viewpoint epistemology, that knowledge and authority is rooted not in a person's knowing things, or in Lemon's case, his knowledge of what he can convey or elicit, but that he is, per his telling, someone who has lived in black skin every day. And as such, and therefore, he knows, well, what? What does he know? We couldn't even tell what the assertion of fact was. We could tell that Ramaswamy said something that Don Lemon was having none of, but we couldn't possibly evaluate it. There was a time when Lemon appealing to his lived experience might've been the most important thing he could say. Trumping the confusion, cross talk, the rebuke of the control room, freezing out his co-host, his dismissiveness of the guest, CNN made clear that time is no longer. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is both COO and in charge of philanthropy for Peach Fish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Umpruji peru du And thanks for listening. Are
1: you talking Don't shoot about the message room, just say what the facts are. Google it.